Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. Today, I am so excited to have an extraordinarily smart guest. His name is Charles Fidel, and Charles is a highly sought-after keynoter and presenter at national and international events for organizations as varied as the World Economic Forum, UNESCO, the World Bank, OECD, Google Tech Talk, the Gates Foundation, National Science Foundation, World Future Society, the New York Times, Schools of Tomorrow, International Baccalaureate, ACT, Learning in the Brain, the British Council, and here on our show today with Innovations in Education. Now, Charles has contributed and been featured on many media organizations, including NPR, the National Public Radio Foundation, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the Huffington Post, eSchool News, Education Week, University Business, Technology and Learning, and of course, with me here today. Your most recent groundbreaking book, Artificial Intelligence in Education, was translated into Mandarin, Chinese, Japanese, and several other languages. And your earlier highly influential book, Four-Dimensional Education, was translated into 10 languages, while the framework was translated into 23. Charles, you've co-authored the best-selling book, 21st Century Skills, which has become a worldwide moniker, and you've contributed to education projects in more than 30 countries, including Australia, Brazil, Canada, Finland, New Zealand, South Africa, South Korea, Sweden, Tunisia, and the United States. You will win awarded seven patents, hold a BS in electronics with a course concentration in quantum and solid state physics, and hold an MBA in international marketing. Charles, welcome to our show today. Thank you, David. I'm already tired from your recitation here. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you. Actually, uh, we met when I went out to Grant Makers for Education, and I had an opportunity to sit in on your workshop, and I was so motivated, so inspired that I reached out to you immediately after and invited you onto my show, and I'm very, very blessed that you decided to join me here today. My pleasure. Now, our show is about innovation in public education, but if folks didn't hear from your bio, you are an engineer by training. So... Tell me how you went from engineering to a path of education futurist. Well, so a couple of things. First of all, the word futurist may sound more science fiction-y than, than reality, meaning you can try to imagine things a long time from now and be completely you know, imaginative, or you can try to simply extrapolate trends because you know what's happening on the technology front, you're in a better place to extrapolate those trends. So I consider myself from that perspective. So it's not a wide-eyed, it's really just the real as me. Second, the transition from uh, engineering to education happened by phases throughout my career. So first of all, I worked as a business development uh, director. So transitioning from technology to business development. And then within business development, starting to focus on the education marketplace, working for technology companies like Cisco, transitioned from technology to education technology. Then eventually, after the books I started writing, transitioned into education policy. 
So this transition took 20 years. It's not something that happened overnight, but at least it's satisfying from a passion and purpose perspective. You know, there's only so much you can be inspired by pushing bits faster. <laughs> now it's about what are we doing this for? So let me take a second to think about the similarities between engineering and education, if, if we could. What are some things from your engineering background that you feel like are very relevant to your current day job as an education futurist and artificial intelligence specialist? Well, you know, engineering teaches you, uh, like any discipline, it teaches you how to think, to think in a specific way. The way that engineering does it is it gives you a sense for processes, a sense for precision. And very often I've found getting into education, you know, two decades ago, that people were talking at each other, you know, having all conversations. It's my theory or your theory. Uh, it's my wording or your wording without going into the specifics of what everybody meant. Once you go into the specifics, you realize that the conversations are far more complicated, far more nuanced. But isn't that what happens in communication in general around the humans, right? Uh, people yell at each other without even defining words like intelligence or whatever it is. So engineering forces you to be precise. When you say creativity, you don't just, you know, you and I may have different ideas of what that means. So we define it a step further with specific verbs explaining, do we mean radical creativity or incremental or both? Do we mean um, flashes of brilliance? Do we have also misconceptions that, you know, only some people have flashes of brilliance, only some people are creative, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to unpack these charged words so you can actually have a conversation. And that spirit of precision and process is what I think engineering brings to conversations about education. I, I got to say, when I was sitting in your workshop, one of the key things that I noticed was your attention to precision in the way that you used words, the way that you used defined words, the way that you engaged in arguments, not like back and forth, but naming the, the assumption that people are making and then pushing that against the ideas that you were putting forth. It was, to me, radical at a conversation in education to be in a space with somebody so clear and so precise and so patient with their preciseness as if the preciseness is part of the conversation itself. It is. It's unavoidable. And as we talk further during this conversation, you'll hear why that's all the more important when we talk about AI. Well, let's get there a little bit, right? Because you said that each discipline teaches us how to think. Engineering taught you how to think in a certain way. I feel like there's a lot of folks in education, but we don't actually spend that much time defining what it means to be educated, which seems surprising, but it's been my experience. So I, I want to start our conversation with this notion of what do you understand the purpose of education to be in 2023? And how would we know when a person is educated? Well, that's another thing that surprised me. The amount of debate that goes on about things that have been, in a sense, long settled. Meaning we don't teach just for jobs, the same way we don't teach just for enjoyment or life, we teach for all these things. It's always an end proposition. So why do we teach again? It's for psychosocial reasons and it's for economic reasons. That's it. So I never understood the, the acrimony in these debates about, no, no, we should be all about this and all about that. These are philosophical 
principles, they're not practical views. Well, you were asking about engineers. Engineers are eminently practical. You know, like, come on, let's not spend another 15 years screaming at each other about whether it's for this or for that. It's obviously for both. That's how we function in life. We need to have economic outputs as well. Uh, we're not just a hedonist uh, billionaire somewhere, at least most of us. <laughs> so we need to educate for both psychosocial needs and economic needs. Simple. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit more deeply. When we say educate for psychosocial needs, what does that mean? How do we define that? I think the economic space is pretty well-defined in 2023, particularly as so many folks are saying we need career-connected learning, career and technical education. But that psychosocial space, I feel like, is, is a little bit softer in the, in the common conversation. So I'll get to the psychosocial space in a second. But before that, even the economic space is incomplete in the minds of people. Meaning they say, okay, well, you need to get paid. You need to have a job. Okay. Or they go to the other extreme, say, you got to do what you love, irrespective of whether you get a job or not. Well, quite honestly, why can't we do that and do something that gives us some money to survive and helps our, ourselves and helps humankind? So that's the so-called Ikigai model, the Japanese model that says, do what you love, do what you're good at, do what gets you some money, and do what's good for humankind. Mm. So you see it's already a more enveloping sense of purpose rather than just get a boring job that you know, kills you over 60 years. That's not the point. It's, it's more, more than that. And then on the psychosocial side, you, you already see some of these elements permeating to the psychosocial side. You know what you're good at, what's good for humankind, what jazzes you. All these things matter. How to be a better human, how to deal with the world around you and its complexity, which is only getting more complex. So that's necessary too. So you can see how the two are really perhaps the two sides of the coin. They're not just, uh, you know, hanging separately. One of the things I noticed is in both of your answers, you talked about what's good for humankind. And I would interpret this as the, the common good, right? Yeah, uh, that which we can all participate from. And one of the things we say at the Urban Assembly is we want to produce young people who can problem solve through the common good. How does that resonate with you in terms of how you think about it? Enormously. I think uh, a lot of Western societies, and in particular the United States, coming from an immigrant background, the United States is the most individualistic country there is. It's been proven, you know, through psychology research. And at a certain point, it starts backfiring. You know, this intense individualism can backfire on us and where we become, you know, it becomes a tragedy of the commons situation where it doesn't matter what happens to everybody else as long as I benefit. So mm -hmm. the I, the moi, is overstressed compared to the belonging aspect. And, you know, no, one, no human is an island. Everybody functions in a society. You got to care for this and nurture the society just as much as you care and nurture yourself. Well, I got to say, Charles, I am sure my audience did not expect an engineer to be so focused on the psychosocial notion of the nature of education and schooling. What are some things that have brought you to this space? Because I think right now schools are very much in this or paradigm, either academics or psychosocial, either economics or the common good. Tell me a little bit more about how you, the engineer, have come to this more expansive notion of the nature of education. Well, first of all, let's see if you or, or actually the audience doesn't have a certain, how can I say, preset for what they understand engineers to be. 
Uh, sure, you can spend your whole life designing the door of a Boeing plane, fine. But most engineers don't do that. Actually, most engineers are engaged in solving medical problems, water wells, you, you name it. And so it's not uncommon, actually, it's more common than not mm. for engineers to be involved with real-world situations, solving real-world problems. So perhaps this misconception of what an engineer is needs to be throttled back, and we need to push forward the notion of an engineer as a problem solver who can adapt their skill to anything that shows up. It's almost as if if we were doing good in the education system, most of our young people would be grounded in a, an engineering mindset as opposed to a content understanding mindset, right? About well, correct. But it would also be an engineering mindset, a, a mathematical mindset, a historical mindset. You know, all these mindsets need yeah. to be understood. It's just that, unfortunately, we talk about STEM, but we really leave technology and engineering out because mm -hmm. Science and math have sucked up all the time, plus the other disciplines, of course. And so there's no time to teach these modern disciplines that are more required than ever, more needed than ever. So technology and engineering, social sciences, yes, you know, psychology, sociology, anthropology, political science, absolutely. And then entrepreneurship and business. But these are three major disciplines that are left out because the docket is full. Well, all right. We got to this idea that there is an economic output. There's a psychosocial output to high quality education. And you're on the show today because you are an expert in artificial intelligence. There have been articles, New York City has banned it, then brought it back in. Kids are using it to do their homework and, and write messages to potential boyfriends and girlfriends. This notion of education, what it means to be an educated ed, it's going to be impacted by technologies like AI. Tell me more about how AI will impact the future of education and our current education system. Okay, so the first thing to talk about then is what actually can AI do and not do, and what could it do in the future and not do in the future. There's, of course, like any time a new technology comes up, there's an enormous hype cycle, right? It just it's a wave of hype that eventually dies down. The real work takes place, and eventually, you know, we have real innovation. So right now we're in the peak of the hype cycle. The hype implies that, oh my God, the sky has fallen. AI can replace all the jobs. It's already, you know, at the point of being generalized AI, acting like a human, and perhaps eventually a super intelligence being able to be smarter than all humans combined. Well, okay. That's so far from what the technology is actually presently capable of doing. It's, these are philosophical debates. They're not even real debates. But because of the concerns that they engender, they shift the conversation away from the present capabilities, which are awesome already. We don't need generalized AI to have an awesome set of capabilities that's going to impact jobs and impact education. We'll talk about that. Let but me just uh, do a quick interruption, Charles. I love that you use the word awesome to describe the capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. That is really cool. It's not good, great, it's awesome. So I just want to give it back to you after that acknowledgement. Well, thank you. It, they are awesome because if you think about how these things work, it's literally a system that computes the probability of a word showing up after a given word by looking into this enormous data set that it has, trillions of words. That's what it does. It's literally a, a statistical engine 
Mm-hmm. And yet out of that, it can synthesize and distill uh, a lot of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's the fascinating part about it. Something as, call it crude. I mean, obviously it required billions of PhD hours to get to this point. But, you know, after literally a hundred years of progress, now we're at the point where we have amazing capabilities at our fingertips. And these capabilities are cognitive light capabilities, and I underline the light. Whereas with the internet, these were communicative light capabilities. Now we have cognitive light capabilities. And one could not happen before the other, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these concepts date back to literally 1948 with Claude Shannon describing his mathematical theory of communication, how by computing the probability of letters and words, you would eventually come up with real world sentences. That's exactly what has happened. And even that, if I may, rests on the probabilities of mathematics worked by uh, Andrei Markov in the 1890s, you know, 100 plus years ago, 130 years ago, to describe again what a, a so called Markov chain of events means. So you see the long, long tail of these things. You start with the math, you end up with the engineering. Then in the meantime, of course, we had to develop microprocessors and the chips and so on and so forth. And eventually you get to this point. It seems magical, but it's based on trillions of hours of sweat. I mean, not trillions, billions of hours of sweat. Well, I want to sit with this idea of cognitive like. And I want to speak to, we talked a little bit about what the capabilities of generative uh, AI versus machine learning. Let's just talk a little bit about generative AI on the cognitive domain. And maybe we could use Bloom's taxonomy as a, as a proxy for the cognitive-like capabilities that it displays. And I think what I want to do from here is also talk about some of the affective capabilities, because I think people may be surprised at what these affective capabilities could do and how they're generated. So what are those cognitive-like capabilities? And should I be worried that my job as CEO of the Urban Assembly will be replaced by the cognitive-like AI that's coming around the corner? So I'll answer the last section of your uh, sentence first. Jobs are vastly more sophisticated than tasks. There are you know, a number of different tasks glued together. And tasks are much more sophisticated than tests. So the fact that these AIs can pass medical tests and law tests and so on doesn't mean that they can do tasks and doesn't mean that they can do jobs. There's probably a factor of pending complexity with each step. So that's part of the hype, just saying, oh, well, it passes the SAT, therefore it's going to replace my job. That's part of the hype that you've seen all, all around. So first of all, don't worry for your job. However, if you don't use AI, Yes, someone else using AI might, you know, hit your job because they'll be able to be a lot more productive. It's very much like, let's say, the uh, the birth of the car. You can say, you know what, I'd still rather walk or take my horse. Nah, whatever, you know, these technologies, I'm not into that. Fine, but me, in my car, I'll be able to drive farther, faster with heavier loads. So if you want to keep walking, be my guest, but I'm going to, zip past you. So the answer is, well, hop in the car. Don't let someone zip past you. That's why. So now going to the question about the cognitives. Yes, this is a complexity. This is where we have to be really fine-grained about it. Because if you look at uh, the Bloom taxonomy from bottom to top, you can find the technology that does every single one of these layers. 
including the synthesis layer, the topmost. And heck, that's exactly what these language models are really good at. They can synthesize from a trove of data. So you can look at this and say, oh my God, we're doomed. But we're not, because if you look, scratch just a little bit deeper, you realize that for every single one of these layers of the Bloom taxonomy, you have to add, it depends. Mm -hmm. It depends, sort of, you know, yes, AI could do some of these things and not some of the other things. So if you simply say synthesize or create, you can make a blank statement that yes, it can create. If you go to the next level, you say, okay, well, what do we mean by creativity? Do we mean incremental creativity? Do we mean radical creativity? Most humans think of radical creativity when they think of creativity, you know, Mozart or whatever, we are strong, I don't know, whatever. But the reality is most creativity is incremental. You know, it's creativity by analogy. For example, razor blades. No, someone came up with two blades. Someone came, comes up with three blades. Hey, how about four blades or five blades? You know, just pure extrapolation. Or by analogy, you know, hey, razor blades have gone this progression. Guess what? Propeller blades have gone through this progression too. Two blades, three blades, four blades. Propellers. So AI can really easily see these patterns better than we can and invent incrementally by analogy and extrapolation. Mm. On the other hand, it's going to be hard pressed to come up with the, you know, high imagination, radical things here and there. That's a good thing. The bad news is that it takes for humans a lot of trial and error to come up with these radical innovations. So, you know, Mozart created a lot of, you know, not so great pieces. And every once in a while, a fabulous one. Same for painters, same for whatever. There's a lot of pedestrian stuff. And then every once in a while, there's a masterpiece. Mm. So if you use the AI to do all of the incremental stuff, when are you going to have the time to do the incremental so you can come up with the radical? Mm -hmm. Right? So that's one of the things that we have to be careful about. Second, perhaps we can actually tweak the AI to so-called hallucinate and use the hallucination to generate these radical ideas the same way that, as you know, artists and... Uh, and LSD? You're going to hit the LSD? Oh. Any drug, or any alcohol, you know, all sorts of things like this have been used. Sometimes, unfortunately, for artists, mental health is what generates these maniacal periods and so on. So could we harness AI to hallucinate a bit more, to be more radically innovative? Who knows? So now you see how sophisticated the conversation it becomes. Mm -hmm. It's not just, oh, yeah, it is creative, or oh, yeah, it's not creative. It's under what conditions, to what extent how, with or without human help, and on, and on, and on. Mm. The idea you keep coming back to that I hear, Charles, is this notion of not either or, it's and, rather or, right? Under what conditions? And that's something that is really, I, again, I think complexifies the conversation a little bit, right? But it, it brings us to a, a higher level of sophistication because conditions matter. But if you want to change education, you have to be careful about these considerations and not just to go walk blindly into a, an enormous supposition just because you haven't tested it carefully. The thing that also you mentioned here was jobs versus tasks versus yeah. tests. And I think, again, here, 
knowing what tests do, what they're organized around, what they predict versus how tasks are organized versus how we display tasks. And then one of the more important piece is under what conditions that we need folks to be able to display these tasks. So these are things I think are really nice nuances that I think give clarity in terms of how things abstract up into a competency. Exactly. Now, of course, a lot of people have the tendency to want a simple answer to complex questions. That is a natural human tendency because you don't want to waste your, your brain cycles listening to something unless it matters to you. So mm -hmm. if the sort of uh, sophistication matters to your audience, you know, obviously they need to be paying attention. If it doesn't, well, that's fine. But it's a different conversation. Going well, back now to your question about the effective domain. Yep. So the effective domain is, is interesting too, because for those of us who've watched the British series called Humans with an inverted A, the first season was really interesting because the, the family, the little daughter, had bought a so-called synth. And the synth was a human-like robot. And the synth was able to be far more patient than the tired mom and dads after work because they come back from work. Uh, little daughter wants to read the same book for the 50,000th time. You know, we've all had a five-year-old. It's never happened to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we, we may not be quite as patient and cheerful at the 50,001. Mm -hmm. Whereas the robot is just as happy. You know, it's tireless. And I'm separating the words explicitly. It's not tireless. It's tireless. Mm. Same for courage. It is not courageous, it is fearless. Mm. It doesn't have a concept of fear. And that's why, for example, when it plays Go, it can do moves that no human would make because a human is trying to maximize the real estate it has, whereas the AI is trying to win by just a hair. That's mm -hmm. all that matters, is winning even by just a hair. But we're afraid of acting that way, and so the AI is not. Same thing when you test it with a, a fighter pilot. The AI will plunge towards the human fighter pilot, whereas no human would do that because the AI is computing, you know what, I can draw faster, shoot faster. So fine, I win. And so you see, it's not courageous behavior, it's nearly fearless. Mm. So now going back to, again, the question about the effective domain, if you look at the, the taxonomy for the effective domain, with the exception of internalizing an emotion, which the machine cannot do, it can do pretty much all the other layers, you know, with as usual a, you know, under what circumstances. Well, that makes me terrified, Charles. I mean, I, I thought that the, the social emotional domain was going to be the human space that could not be infringed upon by AI, but you're telling me that there are some capabilities around AI and the psychosocial domain and the affective domain that I should probably be paying attention to. Correct, precisely. But again, it's not a, a, a block that disappears. It's not all of the effective domain. It's not all of the you know, cognitive domain. The same way it's not all of the psychomotor domain. You know, we are still driving giant trucks and cranes and so on. They lift much heavier loads than us, although who knows how the pyramids were built. <laughs> but that aside, you know, these machines do a lot more than humans, and we don't hear them. Obviously, you don't want the truck to crush your toe. But that aside, we've lived with stronger machines. So why can't we live with stronger and more emotional, you know, obviously AI machines? 
with the understanding that they still, first of all, they're not excellent everywhere, as we're just discussing. It's always a depending on the circumstance. In some cases, they're actually worse than us. For example, when it comes to critical thinking, in some cases, they cannot do what we do, like reflect on our own actions, etc. So there are plenty of, if you want to call them hideouts, I don't want to call it this way, but you know, it's what people are looking for. Where can I hide from the AI? No, it's really more, what can AI complement me with and what can't it do and work with the AI? That's, again, it's a, the car analogy, drive the car. By the way, speaking of the driving analogy, where's the sense of purpose of an AI? Where's the agency? Mm. We provide it. You know, it's all the more important that we provide the right purpose with the right agency. I'm not going to lie, Charles. There are some days where I don't know what my sense of agency is and my sense of purpose can, can waffle a bit. But to know that I have a little bit of a advantage over AI, because even on my worst days, I have a sense of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And that, that agency separates us from a probability machine. That puts me in a little space. I want to I wanna ask you, are you a Star Trek fan at all? Yeah, of course. Of course. All right. So uh, we're going to have to talk about Lieutenant Commander Data. And uh, obviously, artificial intelligence who sought humanity through the use of emotions to better understand himself in the world. And what I find so interesting here is that we were projecting way out into the future, but it seems like Lieutenant Commander Data may have been behind the times. Under what conditions? Yeah, it's always under what conditions, correct. I mean, quite honestly, never mind Star Trek, I think the best science fiction of all times was 2001 Space Odyssey mm. with Hal, you know, saying, sorry, Dave, I cannot help you. My mission mm. comes first. And the interplay with that, or Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics with mm -hmm. all the fuzziness that even clear laws provide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really what we have to keep in mind, that there's never going to be anything that's perfectly foolproof. But on the other hand, do you ask your questions, these metaphysical questions all the time when you walk in your car to drive? No, you don't. You just do it. Yeah. I think we're going to get to this point of acceptance and just do it and not feel quite so terrified by it. Well, let's think about how to get to this point because we're talking about education. And in order to maximize the use of this new technology, understand ourselves and the world, problem solve through the common good, we're going to have to do something about how we test our students, what tasks they work on, and how we educate them more broadly. So tell me, in, in light of what you know and what you expect in AI, what do we need to be doing in education today so that our young people are ready to exploit this new technology to improve themselves in the world? Okay, well, education is all about what you teach and how you teach it, right? So here we've been discussing why to teach differently, better, et cetera. So the what, you know, are the standards and curricula and the tests, right? So what should we be teaching in an age of AI? And to make a long story short, we need to modernize the existing disciplines. For example, why so much trigonometry and so little data science in math, right? That's a simple example. Or we have to introduce modern disciplines. Why do we call it STEM and not teach TNE? Okay, then... Why do we keep talking about critical thinking and 
communication, collaboration, do so little about it. Well, it's because we haven't deployed professional learning at scale for all the teachers and given them tools to embed these competencies in their lesson plans. And eventually, we have also given them tools to measure them, yet it's perfectly doable nowadays. Yeah. So basically, the what needs to be reshaped. It's not an immense amount of work, but it's significant. It's an S-curve here we're going through. It's not just tweaking the standard on the edges. It's really rethinking every line item and its relevance for a modern world. So this idea that you put forth has multiple layers, right? One is the content itself. Yep. What we are teaching should shift, right? And it should be more relevant to the problems that we are trying to solve today. Correct. Then how we teach, I heard, things like communication, collaboration, critical thinking needs to be elevated. So the what we teach is communicated in a way that has students work together, solving problems, working Correct. on things that matter. Correct. So project-based learning, formative assessments, and so on. But to do that, one has to recognize that teachers need more PD, they need more time, they need equipment, they need space in the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera, to do so. It doesn't happen like that. Second, again, you have all debates, all project-based learning or no project-based learning, you know, people swinging widely between these extremes. Let's be serious. Project-based learning can be very sticky. Very interesting to teach these competencies like communication, collaboration, etc. But it can also be time inefficient. And one thing that education is meant to do is distill centuries of human progress into 12 years. Mm. So we're not going to let you rediscover things since whatever Archimedes or whatever, just so you can finish uh, this night. It's implausible. So we have to blend the two models and the Appropriate blend is probably on the order of 30% projects and 70% didactic. And there are ways to blend the two together in one course, one lesson plan, so that people see, students see the applicability of what they're doing to the real world. And that's very sticky, even if you're learning didactically. So one more time, this is this blend. It's not the philosophical, all project-based versus no turn and talks or, or chalk and talks. Right. It's this notion of we need to do more to blend techniques that help students engage in the world as it is. What's stopping us, Charles? When, when I hear you talk about this, I'm like, ah, oh, I agree. Why can't we make this work? What is it about our education system today that's concerning these solution sets? Well, there's something at the topmost level that's the blockage on everything, which is university entrance requirements. Mm. That's the big villain in the room that no one ever talks about. And yet it drives everything we do in K-12 because it defines SATs, it defines what gets you in college, and therefore everybody falls in line. The strange thing is that these admissions counselors do not even realize that they have gamed the system this way because they're only looking at their own interests, meaning, you know, I want to sort out kids who are going to be able to succeed in the system. They're not trying to be mean-spirited, but the consequence is that what we teach is gated by these tests. But surely university professors have the best understanding of the knowledge base that our young people need to be successful in society, no? 
First of all, not always, because college professors may be way more sophisticated than what the real requirement is, or way more theoretical than what the real requirement is. And second, very often, the college professor may tell the admissions people, we don't need them to have taken five AP classes already. Please stop. And the admissions doctor say, yeah, but that's for me. It's a litmus test for resilience and grit and this and that and the other. And therefore, I'm using it as a proxy. It's not as much about linear algebra than it is about the proxy that that kid can just grit it and do it. Well, we, Charles, Charles, I'm yeah. going to have to push back on this. I, my yeah. father was a math teacher. I know math professors. They are telling me that calculus is the way to teach problem solving to our young people. Are, are we saying here that it is a proxy for a student's ability to uh, persist at problem solving rather than the content itself? I think that may be crazy. Haha, <laughs> that is a long conversation. I'd be delighted to have with you on mathematics in particular, because we've done a lot of work there. We created the modern standards with Australia and so on. Okay, so I don't want to take us into a rabbit hole here, but let me just say that typically what any discipline considers as their problem-solving approach or whatever is way, way, how shall I say, self-satisfactory compared to the reality. Mm -hmm. So... Let's leave it at that because, you know, every single discipline has the same problem. It thinks that it does such a good job at teaching HYZ. It does not. Really, at the end of the day, it's just imparting inert knowledge by and large. Mm. So we've been talking about AI in education. We've been talking about AI as a probability-based engine that has the ability to predict and that prediction creates cognitive-like abilities. What are some fears that you have? When I talk to folks... In education, they're like, what if, what if folks use AI to write essays and, and never learn how to write? Or what if folks use AI to solve mathematical problems and never learn how to compute? What are some fears that you have? And how do you think about the fears that other folks have in the education space? So any new technology generates fears. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I'd rather be people be a little bit cautious and do no harm. But that doesn't mean give them carte blanche to be fearful and not experiment at all and block things. They should say, okay, well, let's open an experimentation window. Let's see how can we teach essay writing better with AI. In other words, if you have the statistical engine that's going to give you a very bland essay, very formulaic, well, perhaps we are teaching in a very bland, very formulaic way. All right, how do we make that essay better? Oh, by the way, this is the best way to communicate an idea. How do you do an essay in 140 characters, et cetera, et cetera. So it forces the spotlight. AI puts the spotlight on what we're doing in a very rote way, having accepted dogmas for decades or if not centuries. It just says, wait a second, all you're teaching is memorization here, here, you know, medical entrance exam. And, you know, this is less important nowadays than knowing how to actually use the information. Right. Or dear English teacher with the essay, the long form essay, you know, is not what resonates as a communication mechanism nowadays. We're not in the 1800s. What should actually be done so that the student expresses a point forcefully, impactfully, not forcefully, impactfully. That's yeah. really what you're looking for. Even if it took one word to be impactful, fine. Your point is to be impactful, not to write the essay. The essay is a mechanism to be impactful. But sometimes we forget why we do things. 
like the old joke about, you know, this family that always cuts the tail of the turkey before putting it on the oven. And so, you know, the son asked the dad, well, why do we do that as a family? And he's, I don't know, uh, ask grandpa. You ask grandpa, why do you do that? Oh, because my father had too big of a turkey one day and then he cut the back. And from here on, the whole family just cuts the back of the turkey before putting it in the oven. It's not for a good reason. The good reason has disappeared a long time ago. Mm -hmm. We just go on inertia. It's, it's interesting you say that because I think when, when we think about the function of an activity and at what level that we abstract it. And again, Charles, one of the things I appreciate about you is your precision of language, right? What is it that we're doing? Why are we doing it? What effect are we trying to create? And either the student, the information environment, whatever we're trying to do here. And to a certain extent, our education system is content uh, to teach content or to teach processes without understanding what the effects should be in thinking and understanding and learning, given the environment that's around. And when you talked about university entrance and exams and the sense of self-indulgence, there is a real cost to this. And, you know, I don't know that we spend enough time recognizing the cost to an abstract level of education at the expense of problem solving for regular people to do regular things at a fluency that allows us to be successful and contribute back to society. So some of the things you're saying are really uh, resonating very deeply with me, and I wanted to appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, David. You know, another aspect of why this, is, this cannot happen easily is because teachers are overtaxed. You know, they're supposed to be everything and everybody. You know, they're supposed to be a healthcare worker and a teacher and a this and a that. It's not possible. They don't have the time to develop uh, lesson plans of this sophistication that requires you to pay attention to the context. What is essential content nowadays? And sort out without any help. What are the core concepts that go with the content? What are the competencies that we need to deploy on our critical thinking? Uh, how do we do formative assessments? What kind of projects do I use? All of that, the day or the week before, on their own. It's just superhuman to do that. We have teams of several people per lesson, and it takes us several months to design a single lesson. So to reach this level of sophistication, you know, with just solo teachers doing it on their own with no help, that's not going to happen. So we talked about the big bad villain being the admission side, but once the admission side is unlocked and hopefully it will within my lifetime, then we're still going to have the problem of, and how do we scale all these teachers to be able to do the sort of thing, which is, this is my optimist side here which is where AI can help mm -hmm. because we're going to get so much better at producing curriculum and lesson plans at scale and with a human supervising the output to make sure it's cogent. No human outside the loop, human in the loop. Mm -hmm. That's hopefully what's going to happen. AI brings both the sense of urgency and hopefully the tool to solve that sense of urgency. Well, uh, Charles, I know you have a new book coming out. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the new book. What are some big problems that you present in the book? And what are some solutions that you offer to those who want to learn from it? Well, it's a very granular conversation about, you know, as we said, the precision in the language. You know, so we look at what are the goals of education, as you were asking. And, you know, it's about wisdom. It's about jobs, et cetera. Explaining why jobs are not going to disappear. Why wisdom is still necessary. And then how that uh, implies that we need to teach, you know, the what better. So it's the knowledge that's required, 
skills, character, meta-learning that's required, how do they fare in the age of AI? You know, are they more important, less important, to what extent, how, etc. And then there's a section about the how, which is, okay, well, what can we do in the classroom to make these things happen better? Now, the good news is that there are millions of experiments going on around the world, teachers on their own trying to use machine learning in their classrooms. That's wonderful. And I think over time, we're going to see what are the techniques that congeal and give us the better result. So that's, I'm very encouraged by all this experimentation. And the name of your book? The name of my book will be Education for the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Education for the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Charles, we started this conversation talking about how you came into public education. How do you move from an engineer into business, into ed tech, into a person who was deeply invested in the notion of what it means to be educated and educated futurists. And we talked a little bit about how AI works, how probability reflects this notion of cognition. We talked a little bit about what the future of education was and what's stopping us from educating students in the way that they will need to be in order to be successful in the 21st century and beyond. And we also talked about your new book, the things that you talk about, the things that you care about, and some of your optimism around how AI can be the problem to and solution of many of our challenges. I, I like to think of alcohol in that same way, the, the problem <laughs> even solution of, but you know, AI is next best thing. So I really want to appreciate you for taking the time to come on our show. And I look forward to making sure that all of our audience have access to your book when it comes out. It's my real pleasure. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams, and have a great day.